Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series exploring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, helping you set meaningful goals in 2023. Welcome to the Responsibly Different mini-series featuring the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. In this episode, Ben and I will be discussing goal number seven, affordable and clean energy. As the United Nations states, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. You are going to hear from a few different voices in this episode. They are professionals in the energy industry working on this every day here in the United States. While listening to this episode, please take into consideration how different these perspectives are. Yes, they all may be working for companies that are deeply rooted in the clean energy industry, but that's not all they do. Because with the clean energy transition that we are trying to make for our economy, there is so much more that is connected. One of the companies helping to make this clean energy transition with headquarters based here in Maine is Revision Energy, a certified B Corp employee-owned solar company. Our first guest is Fortunat Mueller, co-founder and president. Revision Energy's mission is to build our electric future, and that future is an energy system where all end uses of electricity, of energy, are electrified, and that electricity comes from renewable energy sources. It's also a future where our energy system, our company, and our community is resilient, just, and equitable. And that second part is pretty critical to us because the clean energy transition, as you know, is a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-multi-generation opportunity to remake, our, you know, most everything that touches our lives. As we do that, we want to not propagate forward the inequities that exist in our in our current you know, fossil-based energy systems. We then asked Fortunat to break down how Revision Energy is contributing to Goal 7. SDG Goal 7 could basically be Revision's mission statement. Right? This is what we do. We're trying to create access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. For us, that means overwhelmingly solar energy and electrification of end uses. And the for all piece is really important. And, and it's a big part of why, you know, revision feels like we have to, and we do have an explicit social and racial justice component to the work we do because the energy transition is not accomplishing what it needs to accomplish. If it is not a just transition and an inclusive transition. And that means both in terms of customers who are served and the people doing the work and the people investing and financing and making money off people doing the work. The energy transition globally and locally is the biggest opportunity we have to fix the systemic inequities that exist in our current system. In the next thousand years, we will never have another opportunity like this. And uh, we're crazy not to take advantage of that opportunity and to use the clean energy transition as a chance to not only save the world, 
but make the world a place that's worth saving. The next perspective we want to highlight is Sarah Killick from All In Energy. All In Energy is a nonprofit based in Massachusetts working in the communities they serve around energy efficiency technology. I think I can start with my organization first as All In Energy reflecting on UN's Goal 7. That is what our organization is working to accomplish um, to make sure that we have a clean energy space where it's accessible and just for all. And every day, the work we do is to just do that. And in addition to that goal, we're also making sure to diversify the clean energy workspace. And I think that is something that is overlooked by many organizations. However, it is crucial in making sure that that goal UN's goal seven can be accomplished because if we can't think like the communities we're trying to serve or if we can't speak like them or know what their experiences are, we can't design programs that will be just for them. So I do believe that while that is a great goal, it needs to be more inclusive in that sense. We asked Sarah to share the work that All In Energy is doing every day. You'll hear they have a focus that relates to the UN's target 7.3, which is, and I quote, by 2030, double the global rate of improvement in energy efficiency. So as All In Energy, we are working at the intersection of two problems that are interconnected. And the first issue we're tackling is actually diversifying the clean energy industry. Just like any other industry, right? You walk into a clean energy company's offices and you'll see that majority are white males. And really the second issue we're also working on is the injustices with how energy efficiency and clean energy programs um, are operated and administered, and specifically who is taking advantage of these great programs that are available to all. Having such knowledge in this space from my previous work, I was privy to the systematic oppression that Sarah is talking about. It is one of the reasons we brought All In Energy into this episode. We wanted to ensure that we brought light to how it is so important to have programs that are designed to work for everyone, not just the few. Without the work by them and others, it would be impossible to complete the goal, modern energy for all. In Massachusetts, we have one of the lead, um, nation's leading energy efficiency programs, and it is available for anyone in the state that pays for their electric and gas bills. And so essentially, there is this great program out there where people can be eligible for energy assessments at their homes to identify improvements so that their homes can be made more energy efficient and comfortable and help them save money on their bills each month. And through these programs, really, folks can take advantage of no-cost insulation. They can take advantage of incentives that would help them install new heating systems or cooling systems. So overall, making their homes more comfortable at really low or to no cost to them at all. Um, but the issue we're encountering is even though this program is out there and everyone is eligible for it to take advantage of it, not many people know about it. 
However, the majority of residents taking advantage of these programs are from wealthier, suburban and majority white communities. And even if they know about it, they have several barriers in taking advantage. For instance, again, those language barriers they may have, or they may have distrust in any programs related to energy efficiency. So really what our job is to make it accessible for all, but then also to be with them throughout the process, because as barriers come up, we want to be supporting them as well. We feel so lucky that Sarah was willing to share her personal story with us about what led her to All In Energy and why the work she is doing is so important to her. Take me as an example. So I'm a first-generation immigrant woman whose first language is not English. And I was going to a community college when I first started as an intern at All In Energy. And through All In Energy, I got into an industry that I knew I wanted to get in but couldn't really figure out how or if I could at all. So I have an accent and, you know, I was just a student at a community college at the time. I wasn't a STEM major. And so all of these obstacles stood in my way. But at the same time, I possessed skills for and had the capacity to grow for opportunities that very much exist within the industry. And All In Energy was my entry point in being introduced to these opportunities. And now, fast forward four years, and I stand in front of you as a senior manager at my organization with my bachelor's in communication and clean energy and sustainability. And I'm not the only one in my organization. Half of our staff and interns are women and multilingual, and around 60% of us are people of color. And I'd like to also note that for a majority of us at All in Energy, this was our first experience within the industry. And more than half of our interns have continued on to the other positions within the clean energy industry as well. And so diversity is a crucial part of our work, just like in any industry. But especially for us in tackling the issue of how certain communities are underserved when it comes to energy efficiency programs. So these communities speak languages other than English, they're low to moderate income households, and they're people of color and their tenants. And the fact that they're not participating in the available programs is at no fault of their own. You know, proper marketing is not done in their preferred languages, or the jargon used is too complicated for them. Even if the marketing is done well with these communities, in mind, the full process of going through the programs to take advantage of the benefits is not available in their language. And some communities also don't have trust in any of these programs, especially energy-related programs, because there are predatory energy suppliers out there scamming vulnerable communities, hence creating this trust. Or even just the fact that people don't know anyone in their circle that has participated in the programs before. So they think it's not for them or they don't think that they can trust someone enough to let them into their home, for instance, to perform the energy efficiency measures. And really, I could go on and on about these reasons. But my point is, by diversifying the industry, 
we're able to do outreach in our communities in ways that make it accessible for them. And importantly, we allow the process of going through the programs available in their preferred languages. We work with them to remove barriers when they encounter them. And through all of this experience and insight into how it really is for our communities, we then go ahead and advocate for them and with them for programmatic improvements. Sarah touches on so many different aspects here. I want to first bring us back to her workforce development comment. It is great to see that in four years, Sarah has grown within her organization. I want to bring up something that we learned about workforce development from our conversation with Shalea Morissette, Chief of Minority Business and Workforce Division for the Office of Economic Impact and Diversity for the U.S. Department of Energy. She talked about the grant money the government has available for workforce training. The hope is that experiences similar to Sarah's can become more common with more financial support from the government in the energy sector. In early 2023, first quarter, there'll be $200 million released. Really, that's around home energy efficiency contractor training. And so states can partner with nonprofits to deliver this kind of training. Again, providing jobs. There's another 10 million coming just in higher education for training, energy efficiencies for businesses and institutions. There's, I think, another 40 million just for, for energy auditors. That's That'll be divvied out through the states. And then the funding type is really like a cooperative agreement where they're um, operating contracts through the national labs. Again, that's first quarter. That's That's around the corner. The unique thing about that program in particular is that part of those funds are designated to pay the wages of the trainee during the period where they're actually in uh, the training or certificate program. It's no longer you're getting this training and you have to sort of suffer in the process, right? Where you're not getting paid. You're just there to learn. Knowing that you have bills, we have a lot of adult learners that are looking to sort of transition into this field. Either they're in it and want to learn something new or they've never been in energy and they're looking to get in, this is a very accessible way to do it without going uh, broke in the process, right? So this is the federal government really saying, we will pick up the bill for part of this training and make sure that people um, are still able to pay their bills, right? Um, and then there's you know a whole other program just for career skills training. That's through nonprofit partnerships. It's all grant dollars. Again, that's through classroom instruction, on-the-job training for industry-related certifications, right, to install energy-efficient building technologies. So I think with that, we're looking at, you know, just under uh, $300 million that we are putting into career and workforce training. We need to lower the barriers to entry. We need more skilled workers to make the clean energy transition. With more workers comes a faster transition off of fossil fuels. To get a better perspective about this movement and work, we're going to hear from Fortunat at Revision Energy again. When we think about the clean energy transition, you know, we think about hearts and minds, we think about policy, we think about technology. But fundamentally, the clean energy transition is a giant infrastructure project, a giant public works project. And sometimes we don't think about it that way because it's a distributed infrastructure project, but it's probably the biggest infrastructure project the world has ever done. But if you think about the, you know, the Big Dig or the Hoover Dam or you know, the Three Gorges Dam, uh, the clean energy transition is orders of magnitude bigger than that, right? It's, it's orders of magnitude bigger than um, the interstate highway system or rural electrification in the early part of the last century. And, and so 
So the clean energy transition is basically a huge construction project. And a huge chunk of that construction project is electrical work. And so to be successful, we need a ton of skilled, licensed electricians. And the world and the country is short of those things. Right? We have about 700,000 licensed electricians in the U.S. today and more retiring every year than are being licensed every year. And we probably need about a million more by the end of the decade in order to have a chance at accomplishing our clean energy goals. And so Revision sees that as you know one of the fundamental drivers of the clean energy transition, and that's why we you know, committed to, to doing our part to eliminate that bottleneck. So about five years ago, Revision Energy launched the Revision Energy Training Center, which is our in-house electrical training apprentice program, with the goal of you know training electricians to do this clean energy transition work, both at Revision and outside. We asked Fortunat to give us a bit more about this. We were curious to understand if there was a way that we all can support that movement. One thing anybody can do to support this work is to change the way we think about and the way we talk about the trades. For really the last generation, in the U.S. in particular, we have thought of the trades or, you know, trades education, trade school, voc tech school, as being what we do with students who we think can't be successful in college. And increasingly, we need to change the way we think about that. The world needs a ton of electricians, and being an electrician is a great job, a solid earning job, a respectable job, a, you know, a non-outsourceable job, and a job with a ton of career certainty and opportunity. And so we need to talk to kids, you know, from elementary school to middle school to high school to college about what that opportunity looks like and, and understand that it's a really attractive opportunity and, and celebrate people who make that choice, just like we celebrate people who, who make the choice, you know, to go to a, four, to a four-year college and pursue a different degree. People should be celebrated for whatever choices they make. And as Fortunat says, being an electrician is a great career path. And like many industries out there, we need to do a better job of ensuring all our industries and career paths are welcoming to everyone. Yeah, so one of the things we're increasingly trying to do is to diversify the funnel of folks who are entering the career technical education programs, including our apprentice program. For a variety of reasons, the electrical trades, the skilled trades in general, have generally been pretty male and pretty white and not that welcoming to people who are not male and white. And so we and lots of other folks are, are trying to rectify that, that history. Um, and so we're trying to partner with lots of different organizations to make people aware that the electrical trades or the skilled trades are an available career path and an attractive career path for people of all kinds um, and people of all backgrounds. The work that Revision Energy is doing is important, and there is still a lot of work left to do to make it accessible. Fortunate identifies some of the barriers and obstacles that exist to make the clean energy transition. Yeah, there are different obstacles in front of different people in terms of you know making the clean energy transmission transition in their own lives, in their houses, in their workplaces. One substantial obstacle for a lot of people, especially low and moderate income people, is uh, equitable access to capital. When you shift from you know burning fossil fuels for energy to to clean energy, solar and wind, you're essentially replacing you know fuel and operating costs with an upfront capital cost. And overall, solar is demonstrably cheaper than all the other alternatives. Um, solar and wind are demonstrably cheaper, but the cost is front-loaded. 
And so the only way to do to do that cost effectively is with financing. And for a variety of reasons, financing is inequitably available to different populations in the U.S. and in the world. Um, and so we need to knock down those barriers because they're structural barriers you know, to widespread adoption of clean energy. You know, there are others, you know, uneven homeownership rates and the sort of relatively higher level of transience in lower income populations and things like that. But the, but the financing challenge is, is definitely one of the key obstacles. And, and that is not just for clean energy, it's across all the electrification efforts. You know, there is an upfront cost to doing most of this stuff. Um, and if you can't finance it cost effectively, you're not going to do it. I think having organizations that are continuing to break down the barriers for community members is important. You will hear Sarah talk about a situation where All In Energy is working with both the landlord and the tenant to help them understand the education around heat pumps and break down more than just the financial barriers. Heat pumps are a type of electric form of heating and cooling your home with the power of electricity. Without the support from All In Energy, there are communities that might not move forward with clean energy projects. Those are the barriers that have existed that we need to more proactively remove. So, for instance, we have been working with a landlord who is very excited about electrifying their rental property by installing heat pumps, which are great alternatives. And it sounds great, right? They're interested, they want to do it, but, well, it's really not all that great because currently the building is heated with gas, which the landlord pays for herself, and then her tenants pay for the electricity. And importantly, her tenants are low-income residents. So these are individuals with budgets that are sensitive to even the tiniest changes. So once or if the landlord goes ahead and installs heat pumps at the property, what will happen is the heating will be fueled by electricity. And if that change happens, the energy burden then will fall on the tenants that may already be dealing with other issues when it comes to their budget. So this great landlord wanting to do good by electrifying the property is left in limbo. And the tenants could also possibly experience stress with what may come. And this is not to say that the electrification and decarbonization can't happen. It sure can. However, both the landlord and her tenants need extra support and knowledge about options that can make that change happen equitably. Well, I think this is a great example of how complex and nuanced some of these issues are. At first glance, a landlord looking to create more sustainable energy solutions looks good, right? But without the appropriate financial support for the impact it will have on their tenants makes this a more challenging issue to navigate. I think it's important that we keep this intersectionality in mind as we think about climate justice. And climate justice truly is at the heart of this goal, which is ensuring access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy for all. With this lens... We then wanted to ask Sarah about battery storage and specifically if she felt it was inclusive for all. Brett, I know you have a background in clean energy, um, but I don't. And so I'm curious why this question feels important to you. Well, the reason it's an important question is because to make renewable energy solutions dependable, they rely on battery systems. Battery systems can be thought of as the clean energy solution 
like a generator. If there was a storm or the power grid went down for a number of reasons, instead of your generator kicking on to give you power in your home or your business, the battery storage system would become your backup source for power. Historically, batteries have been seen as too expensive for working class people. So with this knowledge of a system seen only for the upper class, I feel it's important we ask Sarah, what barriers could exist here that maybe other industry leaders aren't seeing? That's another great question. I personally believe that battery storage is, again, a crucial point in transitioning into a clean energy economy. However, within the communities we're working with, that's not a conversation that we can get to at this point in time. At the events that we go to and at doorsteps where we meet people and during the phone conversations we have with people, we're really covering the basics of how do I make ends meet during this winter when I have to pay for my you know, heating costs and I have all of these other responsibilities. And really, so our approach in supporting those residents, it is identifying what programs are available to firstly save money on your bills. And then secondly, what we can do at your home that's an immediate resolve, resolving immediate concerns, but then also to make sure that you're getting that return on your investment pretty quickly. So we really cannot even get into conversations about, you know, battery storage and even conversations around rooftop solar. That's not a conversation we have often enough because we're trying to solve more immediate issues first. If there's one thing I learned from my days of doing marketing for a clean energy company, it is that every homeowner would ask about the return on investment before pursuing purchasing a battery. There are so many benefits to battery storage. To talk more about that, let's hear from John Brannigan, who is the Regional Market Development Manager for Generac at their Clean Energy Solution Division. When we think about battery storage in conjunction with renewable energy, if we think about the grid going down, we all know that as the climate crisis worsens and our severe weather becomes more intense and every year that goes by, our grid is aging. Uh, quite frankly, here in the Northeast, we have some of the oldest grid in the country just by the fact that we're, we're uh, an older part of the country as far as settlement and development goes. Where that fits in, Brittany, by all means, is we see grid insecurity just like we see in, in low to moderate income or as we're, we're working more to say income eligible households, we talk about food insecurity. We talk about different insecurities on that in that income base. Well, we're seeing as the energy transition happens as well, we have grid insecurity that tends to follow suit. Places that lose power uh, more frequently and lose it for more often tend to impact people who are in the lower modern income category as well. So what energy storage does is again is, is level that out. There's a resiliency that comes with energy storage, whether it is a traditional fossil fuel generator, which our company does a lot of, but as we're transitioning, we know we won't be running our generators on fossil fuel at some point in the near future. And as we transition mostly to liquid fuels, natural gas, propane, but we're also transitioning to photons. We want to get away from fossils and over to clean energy that's been 
you know, created from solar or wind or different renewable energy resources, and then be able to bank and store that power for when we need it. Again, when the grid goes out, marketplaces that have TOU or time of use energy billing, our customers can today can set their power cell, Generac power cell battery storage system up to basically discharge or use that battery power every single night to help avoid them paying the higher energy rates. So where that's important to somebody who, um, you know, certainly can afford a larger house or, or different appliances, electrification, we're going to find it's really important for men and women who are struggling month to month to make the electric bill and the rent and everything else. Great opportunity here, not just in the resiliency, but also across the board in, in you know, energy equity for people. I know John just mentioned a couple of industry jargon pieces that I want to make sure people understand as we talk about affordable and clean energy. Photons is another way to describe energy from the sun. Think photosynthesis. And time of use is a way to control when you get your energy at the cheapest cost per megawatt, which is a measurement of energy. Take a peek at your next electric bill. You'll notice the rate fluctuates over the month. Typically, energy usage in the evening runs at a more expensive rate. And fun fact, it's more expensive in the evening because more people are using energy and there's less renewable energy created in contributing to grid power like solar and wind. We do want to explain a bit more about what the energy grid is and how it ties to the climate crisis we are seeing. Since some of us, myself included, might not be as familiar with these terms and concepts about the grid as the speakers are, we asked John from Generac to break that down for us a little bit further. First, you'll hear John talk about the energy grid, then Fortunat will add revisions thoughts about the climate crisis. I think a lot of homeowners or a lot of lay people have this concept of what the grid is. And I think if I've learned anything is that it is a loosely interconnected series of wires that have some general management philosophy across territories, but it's really much, uh, very much a, a, you know, an old industrial machine um, with a lot of moving parts and not always a lot of clear ownership across different boundaries and segments. And absolutely grid power, as we all know, is derived really differently from state to state and region to region. You know, here in the Northeast, we've pretty much eliminated all of our coal fire power plants, except for the last two holdouts in New Hampshire. So I know that our fuel or energy mix, if I'm charging a battery from the grid in New England or an electric vehicle, I feel pretty good about the energy mix and feel better about where we're going. The climate crisis is the result of 8 billion some odd people burning fossil fuels for energy in a closed atmosphere and releasing that pollution into that closed atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is big and resilient, and with a billion people burning fossil fuels, there's a chance it can survive and thrive. With 8 billion, we're just sort of exceeding the carrying capacity of the atmosphere if we keep doing what we're doing for energy. And so the climate crisis is the planet responding to our insistence about dumping our waste into the atmosphere day after day. Luckily, you know, we get all the solutions we need. We don't need to burn stuff for heat, light, electricity. We have other ways to make to make those things. Um, and they're cost effective. And they have incredible economic and resiliency benefits. So what we need is sustained individual and collective will 
to make the transition. As we saw with All In Energy's work, these systems have barriers to entry that are significant. That's why we asked John to share with us Generac's new program partnership with Posigen. Posigen also saw that battery storage is inaccessible to many, so they are working together with Generac to break down some of the barriers they see in the industry. Generac PowerCell and our Clean Energy Solutions division, through a, a new division of ours called GGS or Generac Grid Services, was able to connect with a really cool company called Posigen. Posigen is a company that believes in getting renewable energy out to low to moderate income or income eligible families. And they, they kind of do it. I, I should let them speak more to their own business model. And they kind of do it with a, a, a no credit score sort of ethos. They want to be able to offer solar electricity to people and to communities where it's going to matter the most. And in particular, because of some uh, opportunities that I'll go into more details, we selected Connecticut as a starting place to then go back and deploy battery storage for those uh, income eligible homeowners to pair up with the solar that they already have. Before we keep going, I want to reiterate that this program is getting piloted in Connecticut for homeowners that already have solar panels installed at their house. Generac is not a solar installer, so it was crucial to have participating homeowners who already had solar in low to moderate income communities to see how battery storage can connect to their systems and help them. So the model that Posigen has taken is basically in the solar industry, we've all referred to for years, and we've sort of come to accept and take for granted a PPA or a power purchase agreement, which is usually accomplished through a third party ownership. Somebody else owns the solar, but the soup kitchen or the, you know, the, the library or wherever this PPA is going gets the benefit of that solar electric, electricity on their roof. Well, imagine now taking a battery storage device which the utilities have started to recognize they can talk to and tap for demand response events, having it owned by a third party, in this case, Posigen would remain the owner of the device. The benefits for them are they get the federal tax credit, which thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, we went from a 26% if it was paired with solar and if it was done within a year to now we're going to see in 2023, batteries can be a standalone proposition. So again, our goal is always to pair it with solar, but we can have standalone batteries qualifying for the new 30% federal tax credit. So Posigen has a tax appetite. They have the, the, the means and the desire to own those assets and then get them to the income eligible households, pair them with existing solar. So now we're charging those batteries from renewable energy that's already on site. What Generac and Posigen are able to do together through their innovative partnership can change how the clean energy industry operates and help make energy and battery storage more affordable. Helping to break down barriers so people can get reliable energy and not worry about the chance they might lose power. One of the things I say a lot, Brittany, is, is I think about if, if I lost a fridge full of food, for example, during a grid outage, it would be a bummer. But what I would do is go out shopping. Right. I'm fortunate. I'm doing well. Um, I could go out and and go to the grocery store and replace everything in there and probably pick out a few other things I didn't even know I needed. If someone who's a, a income eligible household, if in addition to all the daily challenges that they have, if they lose a food full of fridge during a, a long duration outage, 
it could cascade and cause problems to where they're not paying rent, not paying their utility bill. Which leads me to a great closing thought from Shalaya. I think immediately what comes to mind is this is an opportunity, right? It's, it's an opportunity to really change what we've seen over the years of things not being equitable, right? You have to look at one in five black households are making a decision whether to eat or turn on their heat. That's a reality right now in this country, and it's unacceptable. That's what I think of when I hear that goal. I'm thinking that this is an opportunity to right that wrong. Thank you. It was amazing to have you join us for this episode. We thank you so much. As stated a few times in this episode, Brittany's past work was in this field, so we had a lot to pull from when making this episode. Thanks for listening and learning alongside us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and rate the episode on your podcast player. Maybe start a working group at your business and challenge your colleagues to find the barriers in your industry that need to be broken down. We will have additional resources, plus all the ones we talked about in our show notes, which you can find in your podcast player. And make sure you tune in for the rest of the series. All 17 goals will have their own episode that we hope you learn from and are able to take away something that you can change in your life. Until next time, be responsibly different. It's okay, it's on my own bright future in the lights today. I can show you too, like it's 1962. Got a bright future in the nick of time, bright future. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly, Ben Marine and Brittany Angelo. We purchased this music from the amazing B Corp Marmoset Music. You can check them out at marmosetmusic.com. To learn more about us, visit responsiblydifferent.com. And to learn more about our parent company, visit dirigocollective.com. <laughs>